It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Pat's got another call. <laughs> Hold on. If it's his mother, I swear. I just like that he got a call <laughs> during his diatribe. Keep raging. If she. If how can. that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great from the moment you're a small bambino you eat pizza you drink vino then they make you roly-poly you get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I am your moderator, John Viola. Delighted to welcome everybody back this week for a very exciting episode, one that I'm really looking forward to. And first and foremost, what a thrill. We have all five of our squad going to be with us on the episode today. So, guys, for those that have been away for a while, welcome back. And it's good to have everybody together again. Yeah, and I'm personally very excited that everyone else is here as backup because I might know less about baseball than I know about colonialism. Like the last <laughs> episode where, thank God I had some funny lines to say. I don't know what I got for this. I'm going to be honest. Just bring your normal humor and charm, bro. Well, as I mentioned earlier, your contribution to today's discourse is singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in Mullins. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen, Patrick. Come on. You could do it. No. Pat, could you translate? Neapolitan for us? Yeah, why don't you do it? Uh, oh, gee. I, I've heard you sing. You're port, 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 I guess you port them and take me out. Port them <laughs> a baseball game. After, baseball. Uh, well, you port them out of baseball. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna have to work on that offline. Porta the metal baseball. This is this. Is, can we name this episode Porta metal baseball? You got it. If you could Thank spell you. it for me, I'll name it. That's all I ask. <laughs> I don't ask for much. Pat, are you leaving the house yet? No, still with Sambacas. Okay, just check. <laughs> no. Listen, for everybody else out there, Jersey took the hardest hit, and Jersey's been very responsible, and we've done everything we've been told to do. So you know, we're out like the South Division. We're chaotic, but when it hits the fan, um, we all do our part. Two New Jersey statistics. I hope you keep this in here and don't end it either one in the mountain, and I'm going to shut up for the rest of the show. <laughs> New Jersey was voted the 49th state in the country for the least amount of depressed people. Wow. And I think because we get all, all our bent-up emotions come rolling right out. <laughs> and we also were rated the most unpatriotic state in the country. Wow. Wow. That's horrible. I think it's just because we're just angry people all the time. <laughs> Meanwhile. Home of the Not revolution. That's a positive thing. Sure. There'd be no America but for New Jersey. Let me say it, it's a perfect transition into today's topic because another first in New Jersey, many would agree, was the first baseball. real baseball game played on the Elysian Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey. And uh, 
Baseball is, as you can tell, our topic for today. And the reason we're getting together to talk about the national pastime is because at the end of this month, July, we're going to see ballplayers return and the great game is going to be back to some semblance of normal. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been particularly excited about seeing the return of baseball, even if it's played in front of no fans, because for me, it's always been a bellwether of my attachment to my American upbringing. I, I feel like it's the national pastime and uh, a great game that just feels very American. And I think the Italian-American community has a lot to look back on in terms of contribution to the game and great stars of the game from the field to the front office. And so we wanted to talk about our contributions to baseball today, and there is nobody better to bring on the show, and we're really honored that he uh, joined us for the episode, than the author Larry Baldessaro, who is the author of Beyond DiMaggio, Italian Americans in Baseball, and a new upcoming book coming out later this year, I believe, about one of those first Italian American stars, Tony Lazzari. So Larry, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thanks for having me, and I'm glad to hear you call baseball the national pastime. Because you don't hear that all the time anymore, which is a shame because I think in so many ways, however you measure attendance at sporting events, ultimately it is the national pastime because no other sport has such a strong connection to our history. I mean, it still remains an important social institution that's been here for more than 150 years. And, um, you know, when our my grandparents, your ancestors came here from Italy. Baseball was one way that they learned about America. Oh, yeah. Baseball was, you know, the metaphor of the melting pot. If you wanted to learn about what it meant to be an American, uh, you had to know baseball. Well, I think one of the things that the game has that no other game has is it is really a pure meritocracy. You know, there's no clock that you're racing against. You get the same amount of at-bats, same amount of attempts as the opposing side. There's a, a mathematical meritocracy to the game that is instructive to what it is to be American. And I think our community, with all of the obstacles and challenges that we faced when we got here, by proving ourselves out everywhere from the coal mines of Pennsylvania to the factories of the Northeast to the vineyards of the American West, and of course, on the many, many prominent baseball diamonds spread throughout the country, we fell well and deeply in love with the meritocracy of this country. And in many ways, I think baseball was a phenomenal venue for that for us. So I'm really excited to have you. Before we start, I just want to go through our team here because I know Anthony and I are baseball fans. I don't know about everybody else. So Ant, you're a ball fan. Who are you rooting for? And uh, what's your attachment to the game? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, played as a kid, always watched it, was a Yankee season ticket holder for a while in the, the bleachers, which was fun and experience in itself. Great place. And, um, you know, and at this stage, I just, I coached my kids. I just love every aspect of it. You know, I'm a Yankee fan, but at this age, I remember the days when I used to say, oh, I hate the Mets, but now I just kind of like watching both teams. I think the Mets have a lot of exciting players and it's, it's I'm just looking forward to get back to baseball. It's funny because it's kind of one of those games where, a lot of people will say, how on earth can you sit there for four hours on your couch and watch the game? And to me, the answer to me is like, I, I, for some reason, I think it's not a lot of things relax me. Yeah. But... yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's probably the only time that Anthony sits on the couch. <laughs> That's right, true. Yeah, that is true. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me. Um, and I'm excited to talk to Larry today because I know my great grandfather who immigrated here, you know, going to Yankee Stadium was a big thing for him. And my grandma still talks about it. So, well, Dolores. 
if Anthony's watching it to relax, are you a baseball fan? So I used to be. I used to be. My family is a Yankee family, and I, I went through a period where I was like really into it. But I got to say, I just don't really watch any sports that much anymore at all. But I, I did marry a Mets fan. So the Yankees kind of disappeared and <laughs> then the Mets were always on. And I don't know. I just, you know, sometimes I'll sit and watch the game with him, but uh, yeah, but I do understand the game because like I used to watch it, you know, I think there was that like period of in the like late nineties where the Yankees had that really great team. Yeah. Uh, that's like where I kind of fell off after a little while. Well, you can't ask for a better time to be a Yankee fan in the late nineties and they say yeah. marriage is in sickness and in health and richer for poor. You, you, you take a little bit of a hit becoming a Mets fan and making that transition. It's a little bit harder, but uh, yeah, it's also, maybe it's just also that because now it's just like more depressing. Because <laughs> yeah. The Mets are always losing yeah. and I have to deal with uh, my husband. He's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't. It's not easy. It's like being a Jets fan in football. I got, I got stuck with that. Yeah. Now, Ro, you're not a baseball fan. So I'm not not a baseball fan. I I'm not I'm not gonna like pretend I know everything. I don't know everything. Like if you told me the guy scored a touchdown, I'd say all right, yeah. That <laughs> me. But I actually went to my very first Yankee game. Like I think it was two years ago because my husband is a diehard Yankee fan, and that was an experience. You know, I, I was never. I can't watch any sport. On I mean, if you want to just torture me. Like, pull out my fingernails, but don't make me watch professional sports, <laughs> like, on the couch for four hours. I'll, I'll die. But, like, the, the experience of being at Yankee Stadium was just tremendous. I mean, I don't think anybody could be in that space live with, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, the, the flashes go off and it looks like glitter. And it's just... It's an experience. I don't think anybody could go and not be moved by that. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, we ate like a bucket of chicken sliders, which are <laughs> but still very good. But the, the, the old lady inside me kind of wish I could have been there for like the, the original Yankee Stadium. And, you know, when tickets were $20 or something and when it was a uh, a plumber from the Bronx and an electrician from Queens, you know, fighting over, uh, you know, something or yelling at each other. And if the Mets played there, because I remember the subway series and everything and how huge it was just from people's couches. And yeah. I just, I, I think I really like that energy. I think what makes me sad about baseball is how it became like too much of a business. And now it's just unaffordable for like a family to go because that's how it became America's pastime. Yeah, it's true. It's baseball has a big struggle uh, in its future in terms of accessibility. I, I don't disagree with that. It's so impressive that Nicky's a Yankee fan because Brooklyn was such anti-Yankee territory. Yeah. Due to their loyalty to the Dodgers. Yeah. It's funny now that we've passed from a generation that's so far removed from Brooklyn and the Dodgers being synonymous. No, you're right. That when did they leave? In '57? Yeah, '57. Yeah. My dad's family became Yankee fans because of DiMaggio. My grandfather was a total outsider. But the, yeah, it, it, and they were persecuted. Yeah, they were a persecuted minority in Brooklyn. It was tantamount to treason. My husband's a huge Babe Ruth fan, so he knows everything about Babe Ruth. He's read all these Babe Ruth books, so he he really he respects you know the team of Babe Ruth. And then you know you throw DiMaggio in there afterwards. Just there's there's you can't deny the incredible legacy 
that the New York Yankees have. And, you know, add the Italian American pride into it. And yeah. you know, they, they had a good, uh, they had a good, uh, good team. Well, let me say this. I mean, we get a lot of heat on this show from our, the 13 to 15% of Italian America that has roots in the North that we're too focused on the South. <laughs> I'm sure being Yankee fans, everybody's going to hate on us now because I think every other team and territory in the country, if you're not a Yankee fan really hates the Yankees. But the truth is they've been an amazing franchise for Italian America. I mean, so many great names uh, I'm sure we'll talk about, but Larry, I've read your work. You're a Red Sox fan, right? <laughs> I knew you'd get around to that. Well, I mean, you know, it, it makes no, no, sense. There's a, there's a great irony because um, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, and like my parents, both Red Sox fans, I inherited the curse. Baseball is my first love. And I never could have imagined as a kid, could never could have imagined in writing about so many Italian Yankees. <laughs> Seriously, because <laughs> yeah, I hated them as a kid because they always won. Yeah. <laughs> I had great teams as a kid. You know, Ted Williams was my idol. So Joe DiMaggio was the villain. Yogi Berra, Rizzuto, those guys hated them all just because they were Yankees. Wow. And it wasn't until I really started doing the research for Beyond DiMaggio that it got a, you know, a real appreciation for what that meant for Italians. I mean, the, the social significance of what those ballplayers did to enhance the public perception of us as Italian-Americans is unbelievable. And I think lucky that they did it in New York, too, you know, where the media coverage is. Absolutely. The media capital of the world, the right team at the right time, going back to the 20s with Ruth and then Lazeri coming along. And, yeah, that tradition is great. So when my book came out, you know, I was invited to the Yogi Berra Museum to do a presentation and a signing at Montclair. And uh, that's my neck of the woods. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> so at the, at the university or in the town? No, no, at the Yogi Berra Museum. Oh, sure. Right on campus. Right. So I was, you know, I got to meet Yogi again. <laughs> Not a hero as a kid. <laughs> uh, so I told him, I said, you know, Yogi, I have to admit, I wasn't a fan of yours as a Red Sox fan because you always seem to get the hit that beat my team. And he chuckled. He says, yeah, he says, I get a lot of that from Red Sox fans. But I'll tell you what, I was standing in the office, the director of the museum at the time, and the door behind us opened. I turned around and I literally did a double take because it was Yogi. And I couldn't believe how small he was. Yeah. And of course, he is in advanced age. He was stooped over a little bit. But when they, t they took the photo of me, you know, he sort of came up to my chest and I'm thinking... <laughs> Here's one of the greatest ball players of all time. And look at this man. How did he do that? He might have been the ultimate Italian-American ball player in a lot of ways because, you know, DiMaggio had the finesse and the look, but Barra was just a head down, hard work, get the most out of your talents, and he could do everything. Blue collar. Yeah. Can I ask a Yogi Barra question since we have the expert on? Yeah. Do you think that the famous phrases that are attributed to him, A, do you think he really did say all those things? No, absolutely not. You don't think he did? No. He said one time I didn't say half the things I said. <laughs> and supposedly <laughs> at least some of them were made up by Joe Garagiola. That's one thing. Wow. Because, you know, they grew up across the street from each other in St. Louis, and they were childhood friends. One of the famous yogiisms is when 
Garagiola was going to visit him in Montclair for the first time. He hadn't been to the house. And uh, Joe couldn't find the place. And he called Yogi to get directions. <laughs> the famous line, Yogi said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. <laughs> now, <laughs> just like most of the yogiisms, it, there's really truth to them because it turned out that you come to a fork in the road and whichever way you go, left or right, it's going to come back into one road and you're going to get to <laughs> Yogi's house. That's, so, yeah, I, that's and, you know, I think Yogi was unfairly treated because of his Yogiisms and he was portrayed as maybe not that bright a guy. But I'll tell you what, of the people I spoke to that knew him, there was no smarter baseball man than Yogi Berra. Yeah. Uh, Phil Garner, who I got to know very well when he managed the Brewers here in Milwaukee, uh, he played when Yogi was a coach. And he said, you know, Yogi'd sit there on the bench and he'd predict what the pitcher was going to throw three pitches later. He wow. just had this incredible baseball intuition. Brilliant baseball man. And also there's another one of his uh, yogiisms that I use that works well with kids. You know, the one where he says it's getting late early. I use that at night when I want to get him in bed. <laughs> That's because he played left field in Yankee Stadium. And when the shadows came in, it got late early in left field. Yeah. I love that one. He was really a poet. I mean, I got some experiences with Yogi when I worked for the Yankees and then when I eventually joined the board of the National Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. And he was an incredible gentleman. And like you say, just a student of the game. You could talk about the minutia of the game 50 years after it had happened and remember everything. But before you get to a Yogi, before you get to a DiMaggio, give us a little sense, Larry, of sort of the early arrival of Italian-Americans in baseball and how we get into the game, who are the kind of first real stars, and who is it that really breaks into that first ethnic role model role? I mean, how people attach. Right. Well, you know, get back to the subject we first talked about, baseball as um, a national pastime. At the turn of the 20th century, when all these Italian immigrants were coming over here between 1880 and 1920, journalists and sociologists were touting baseball as the American game. It's how you learn about equal opportunity. Well, it really wasn't at that time. Baseball was dominated by, first, of course, it was the Anglo-Saxons that started the game, but professional baseball at the turn of the 20th century was dominated by Germans and even more so Irish Americans. And it wasn't easy for Italians to break in. Uh, the numbers grew. Italian kids were playing ball all across the country at an amateur level, at a very high amateur level, but they weren't getting into professional baseball. That bias was affecting them very strongly. Um, because people changed their names, it's hard to know with absolute certainty, but in all likelihood, the first major leaguer of Italian descent was called Ed Abaticchio, who... Um, was from Latrobe, Pennsylvania, Arnold Palmer's hometown. Mm. And unlike most, he was a son of an immigrant, but his father was fairly well-to-do. He, he wasn't uh, you know, a laborer immigrant. He owned a hotel and a restaurant in Latrobe. But Ed wanted to play baseball, so he signed with the Philadelphia Phillies in 1897. Wow. So that's really when it starts. He became a very good player, and he was sought by Connie Mack and John McGraw. And finally, the Pirates signed him in 1907, and he was the second baseman to Honus Wagner, the shortstop. And that first year, 
Honus Wagner had already won like at least two or three batting titles. And Abatiki was so sought after that he made more money that first year than Honus Wagner. Wow. One of the all-time greats. Yeah. That didn't last long, but that just to give you a sense of this guy was, you know, a very good ball player and the first two-sport professional athlete because Latrobe had a football team that was considered one of the first professional football teams, and he was their star runner and kicker. Wow. So he played uh, until 1910, but after that, there was very few people, um, and those that got in had very short careers. You had a guy named Babe Pinelli who played for the Reds. He was an infielder. He had a good career for eight, nine, ten years. And then later on, he became the first Italian-American umpire, Babe Pinelli. And he was the umpire behind home plate when Don Larson threw his perfect game in the 56 World Series. Wow. So you get this handful of people coming up. The other name that got some national recognition was uh, Ping Bodie who played for the Yankees at the time of Ruth. Now, nobody would have known of him as Italian because he was Ping Bodie, B-O-D-I-E, but his birth name was Francesco Pezzolo. Wow. He was a San Francisco native, became quite a ball player. San Francisco produced the great majority of early Italian-American ball players. It was a hotbed of amateur baseball. So many of them came off the sandlots way before the DiMaggio's even. So Ping Bodie was one of those, and he was a slugger. He played for the White Sox. He went to the Yankees, 1918 to 21, I think. And Bodie was a very colorful character, and he roomed with Babe Ruth his first year. So some reporter said, what's it like to room with the Babe? And, of course, knowing Ruth's nightlife, Bodie said, I don't room with the Babe. I room with his suitcase. <laughs> so we've been, one thing we've added to the game is obviously wit. Yeah. Can I ask a question about Albatikio? Yeah. So he signed in 1897. Yes. I'm very fascinated by, I call them the first generation of Italian Americans. They were the people born, let's say, late 1870s, early 1880s, the children of the first wave. So I would probably put him, I guess, in that category. Right. You know anything about where his family came from or who his parents were, why they came to America, where they were from in Italy, any of his Italian background? Yeah, that's what was odd about him, because I say, unlike most of our ancestors who came over as uh, laborers, and uh, his father had been um, a barber in Naples. So it wasn't that he came to America out of desperation. He came out of interest because he had this wanderlust, and he knew a sea captain who says, well, you, you know, come along with me. So he got to America, and he was robbed. <laughs> So he ended up at Latrobe at this um, brotherhood of Catholic priests. So they took him in. And so he got back to making good money. And he had this tavern, and as I said, a hotel. And that was the background that the said Abatikio came from. And he went to school. He got a junior college degree equivalent at the time to be a bookkeeper because his father expected him to run the business with him. But he wanted to be a ball player. and. So he signed with the Phillies. But then his father said, look, he said, uh, you've got to come back or I'm not going to give you the hotel and, you know, you're not going to inherit it. So when he went back, he found out that the only way he could be a ball player that retained the liquor license for the hotel was if he played in Pennsylvania. 
So that's when he signed with the Pirates. Hmm. So very unusual background. He didn't come from that working class, but almost every other ball player. That's why they became ball players. It was one way to, you know, make a living when not many other avenues were open to them. You know, you talk about the immigrant parents of some of these ball players and the idea of its foreignness to us as we arrive here in this country. And I don't want to talk about Tony Lazare yet because I want to save that till the end so you can tell us about what you're doing now. But if you jump ahead a little bit in the history of the sport, I think it's safe to say the first and maybe greatest, I say that as a fan, Italian-American ever is Joe DiMaggio. So one of the interesting things about DiMaggio, he's the son of a Sicilian fisherman from San Francisco, as you mentioned, a hotbed of Italian ball playing. And his parents didn't want him to play particularly when he came up, right? I mean, they, they, oh, they kind of resisted. Well, you know, the father was a fisherman, had five sons, and the two oldest sons did go into the fishing business with dad. And he expected all of them to do that. Vince, who was the next oldest, he wanted to be a ball player. And Papa Giuseppe refused to sign the contract. Well, he went out on his own, Vince, and he played with a sort of an offshoot of the San Francisco Seals in the Pacific Coast League. He went out in the desert somewhere and played for a summer. This was in 1931 or 32. Uh, he made $1,500 over the summer playing ball. Went back to the house, put the $1,500 in cash on the table in front of Papa Giuseppe, and that changed everything. <laughs> and it did. <laughs> That's all it takes. That's <laughs> Italian it took. family. We're practical people. That, that happened with a lot of parents who told their sons, you know, you, you're wasting your time. You can't make a living playing baseball. But when they did, and they showed how much money they had. So, you know, I spent a lot of time with Dom DiMaggio, the youngest of the three brothers. And after Vince made it, and then Joe got into the game, Dom said, my dad came to me and says, and when are you going to start playing baseball? That's quite a turnaround, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we are sharp and pragmatic people. I'll, I'll give us that. <laughs> Larry, I got a question for you. I know, you know, my great-grandfather came here in 1917. My grandmother still tells me how my great-grandma used to make him a sandwich at night. He used to take a jug of wine. He used to go to Yankee Stadium, and that was like, you know, his ritual with all his friends. It was It was a big thing, and I know, like, back then – and, you, and you've talked about this, of course, how these Italian-American ballplayers were really heroes to the Italian-American communities, of course, when the communities were young and they were you know, really integrating into America, which we talk about kind of nonstop on this show. But it seems like today it's different, right? Like Mike Piazza, I would say, is a pretty well-known Italian-American but it's not like, you know, all my friends who are Italian-American are like, I love Mike Piazza because he's like an Italian-American like representing us, right? It's like, it's kind of different today. I wonder if you could talk on that a little bit and how important it was back then. Uh, Ralph Fazzanella was a, I think, New York-born painter, became a very famous primitive painter yeah. in the 1920s. And uh, he said, you know, we were the Ginzo, talking about the Italians, we were the Ginzos from the other side. And the only connection we had with America was baseball. Wow. He said baseball was America. So somebody who became well-known in baseball instilled a sense of pride in the Italian community that, you know, they were used to being characterized as mobsters, 
Latin lovers in the movies, you know, pushcart peddlers. And now all of a sudden you're getting these flares. And Zeri's the one that made that happen. He was the first one that became a national star in baseball. And he, for the first time, instilled that sense of pride in the Italian communities, so much so that he drew all the fans to the ballpark, not just in the Yankee Stadium, but everywhere the Yankees went that had Italian communities, thousands and thousands. He created a whole new fan base. And they honored him at banquets in Boston, Detroit, New York, a thousand people in these banquets. And he just created that great sense of pride at a time when it was needed. You know, then as time passes, you say after World War II, that's the big turning point. There's more assimilation. There's more social mobility. People are moving away. They're marrying non-Italians. So that sense of identity begins to be lost somewhat. So today, when you do go back to Mike Piazza, how much is Mike Piazza considered as an Italian ball player? I mean, among Italians, he is. But outside the Italian community, how many people today could identify any Italian ball player? You know, most younger people, particularly, they don't identify Italians as Italians, as they don't most European ethnics. You don't identify Germans, Polish ball players, nearly as much as you did when they were new in the game. And it meant something to those people. It's funny, through my time at the Sports Hall of Fame and and at NIAF, I've gotten to build a real legitimate friendship with Mike. He's become a really good friend. And uh, I was at the ceremony when they retired his number. And we had a big dinner for him when he got into the Hall of Fame. And I've gotten to know him really, really well. And he and I have talked about this, actually. Um, you know, obviously, we're skipping around the chronology. But Mike was brought into the game by his godfather, another Italian-American great, the manager, Tommy Lasorda, who spent, I think, 20-something seasons as the manager of the L.A. Dodgers. But I asked him. You know, when I was growing up, he was playing primarily for the Dodgers uh, and then eventually the Marlins for a bit and the Mets and then uh, a couple of teams after. But I said, you know, Mike, in my house, even when he came to the Mets, we rooted for him because he was Italian-American. Um, it was an attachment because we were proud of him, but not in like the DiMaggio sense that he was showing an alternative side to who we were. He wasn't proving anything about our Americanness. He was just somebody that we attached to. But I kind of, I did ask him, you know, how many more ballplayers will come up that you think even have any relation to that title of Italian American ballplayer? And he kind of said, you know, he he may be the last one who gets that kind of collective ethnic even awareness, if not, you know, sainthood. Mm-hmm. Of all the younger ballplayers that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed over sixty ballplayers and coaches, managers, et cetera, et cetera, over the years. Mike is by far my favorite, and I'll tell you why. I got to know him first at the first World Baseball Classic in 2006 in Orlando. I was the interpreter for Team Italy. Wow. And, you know, there were only five native Italians on that team. Yeah, yes. I, I remember. I followed the team. The rest were all Italian-Americans like Mike Piazza. And, of course, the five native Italians idolized him. You know, they all knew about him. and. The first thing I appreciated about him was he was one of them. In other words, he didn't major league them, as they say, and they liked him for that. So as I got to know him, I understood that for probably the greatest hitting catcher of all time, he had a great sense of humility. 
He knew his place in the game as an Italian-American. He has a great sense of the history of Italian-Americans in baseball, which is very rare among younger players today. So when I was invited to the National Italian-American Foundation convention in 2011 to have a booth to sell and sign my book, and Mike was there. Now, I hadn't seen him for a few years at that point. He walked into the room, and our eyes met, and I didn't say any. I didn't wave. He remembered me, and he came over, and he spent 20, 25 minutes. He didn't have to do that. Now, Mike's a gentleman. So the next day, this was Saturday morning. I'm at the booth there in the uh, the fair. So there's this couple with, a like, a teenage son, and they're looking at the book, and Mike walks into the room, and he comes right over, <laughs> and he says, he says, you should buy this book. He said, it's really great. He says, if you buy it, I'll sign it for you. So he became my agent. <laughs> I can see that. So for all, all these reasons, I, uh, I have the greatest respect and admiration for Mike. Yeah, he is a gentleman first class. And if there's going to be a last great Italian-American ball player, I'm glad it's him. Yeah. He really deserves it. Now, Anthony brings up a great point. What does this legacy mean to our integration? Uh, one of the things that always floors me and I, I always refer to it you know dimaggio comes up out of san francisco signs with the yankees and he may not be the proto player like tony lazari but he really is a an american icon oh yeah who, who is also an italian american icon so you know he, he transcends ethnicity like sinatra does and i remember when i was a kid my dad and my grandfather gave me a copy of the may 1st 1939 issue of life magazine i hate that i want to burn that but let me finish. There at least. is no, I want to, I don't care. I'm saying to edit me out. That's why you're the editor. <laughs> I want to burn. I, nothing in, it's the most enraging anti-Italian article that was ever published. Why? I explode. You want the quote? When you were talking, I knew this would come up. I actually looked it up. Go ahead. Read the quote. Hold on. Let me get my blood pressure down and read this. <laughs> racist. You want to talk about, uh, hold on. Did you Google it or did you pull it off your book, your shelf? I knew it for years. Yeah. I knew about, about this because I, I, I go berserk about this, but I wanted oh, to pull it up. It's the only time on this podcast I've ever gone online to find something. <laughs> I want to read note for note, word for word. Okay? <laughs> I see. Do I know him or do I know him? All right. Read us, read us <laughs> word for word. This is I guess the... Noel Bush had written, it was a 1939 Life magazine article. He puts DiMaggio as a tall, thin Italian youth equipped with slick black hair. Okay, that's fine. You see how he identifies him as Italian. That's no problem with that. Then he goes, although he learned Italian first, Joe, now 24, speaks English without an accent and is otherwise well adopted to most U.S. wards. Instead of olive oil or smelly bear grease, he keeps his hair slick with water. He never reeks of garlic and prefers chicken chow mein to spaghetti. Wow. I hate- what the hell is bear oil? <laughs> I don't know. That's right. a good question. Right. And I mean, I don't hold it against him because I guess he was prompted by a 24-year-old kid coming out of an immigrant community in San Francisco. Didn't really know. You know, he has, I'm sure yeah. he had a reporter there who was poking him to take it in a certain direction. But I, I, just, I find it... I, I, Enra- it's enraging right. to ignorance. Bad. And I'll tell you why it enrages me. I'm going to tell you why, and then I'm going to shut up because I haven't told this whole time. I'm going to tell you why. Say what you want. They constantly depict us as mongrels, as animals. But 68% of the world's art, as per UNESCO, where was it? The world recognized Her- heritage art, heritage art is all in Italy. 
I think it's fifty-seven percent. Fifty-seven. Okay, I'll yeah. give you. I'll give you a, a, a <laughs> point. Yeah. We who are the foundationary cultures of civilization were mocked by these ignorant people, and that's the only word because I don't think they were worse than racist. They were just ignorant, and that's I'm done. We can go talk about baseball. Or I'm done. Well, good points, Pat. All good points. Also, spaghetti is way better than chicken lo mein. Throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I refuse. I refuse to believe that that he preferred chicken chow mein. Oh, he, he didn't. He didn't. He was prodded. Yeah. He was prodded as if his parents were less than. And my whole thing is, say what you want. There was nothing less than about us then, or or now. Amen. I'm done. Larry, did you ever get a sense from the DiMaggio brothers about how they related to their Italianness? Um. I never met Joe. It was very hard to, to get an interview with Joe DiMaggio. But I spent a lot of time with Dom because he came here in 2002 for the All-Star Game in Milwaukee. And uh, he just was sort of the opposite of Joe. Joe was very reserved, quiet, perhaps a little bit suspicious of people. Dominic was a brilliant man, uh, eloquent, uh, self-made millionaire. Um, and... He clearly had a strong sense of being Italian, and growing up in that family, you had to, obviously. I don't think he ever lost that, but he did become very assimilated over time. But he paid a price. He, in 1953, maybe somewhere in the early 50s, when he was one of the best-known ballplayers in America as a star for the Red Sox and the certainly the defensive equivalent of his brother, if not the offensive, he applied for membership in a country club near Cape Cod, and he was blackballed. Wow. He told me three reasons. I was Italian, I was Catholic, and I was a jock. Wow. He said, but, he said, they realized, some of them, that they had made a mistake. They were embarrassed, so they asked me to reapply, and I got in. Same thing happened to Yogi Berra in New Jersey. Wow. Same time, early 50s. These guys are at the height of national renown. Yogi applies to this country club. And he told me, this is a person-to-person interview. He said, he says, they didn't let me in. He says, they didn't like Italians then. I, I actually know what country club that is. I wouldn't give them the benefit here for publicity. Well, but, <laughs> but they had that attitude well into the 80s. I know some of the first families, oh, Italians that got in in the 80s, and they were Italians. And they just assumed that. They had the um, financial wherewithal to join because their money had to be good. So one day we can bring them on. But yeah, I know exactly. Where, where is it though? What? What? I missed where it is. Where is that? It's in where Jersey. The... It's in Jersey. I, I know exactly. Oh, even which in one Jersey, huh? We're not like talking about a country club in like I don't yeah. know where. Minnesota. Minnesota. It was in a, it was in a yeah. little wasp. It was in a little very well healed wasp town, surrounded in an Italian ocean. It was a little island. But I know exactly. Oh. I'm sorry. Unless I digress. No, but I mean, it's it's true. You know, this is why the game is so important and why these superstars are so important. You know, I mean, look, what many people think could have been the best baseball season ever is 1941. And Ted Williams hits 400. We're crawling towards the Second World War. And obviously, at the end of the year, we'll have Pearl Harbor. DiMaggio hits in his 56-game hitting streak, which uh, maybe I'm biased. I don't think will ever be replicated. If you're a baseball fan, you know how hard that is. And in December, the, the war breaks out. Italy declares war on the United States. We're, we're at war on two fronts. And everybody who's listened to this show knows that uh, the Roosevelt government decides to inter Italian, German, and Japanese Americans uh, as enemy aliens. Very 
controversial point in American history. And DiMaggio's own parents have their fishing business disrupted and taken away from them. I mean, this is the height of his fame. He just did the unthinkable in baseball and his parents' business and boat are confiscated. I mean, how do you, how do you even reconcile with that? You know, by the way, Yogi did tell me, he said, after he got black ball, he says, I went to an Italian club. I got in there right away. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we still had Italian country clubs. I'd join one of those. Uh, You know, you talk about access and the sort of subtle bias against America's new immigrants and what it means to be able to prove out on the baseball field. And even for those superstars, you know, they may not uh, in the, in the circles that are most closed, even get accepted there. But, you know, the Dodgers are another great team, obviously leading the way in the integration of the game and the end of the color barrier. But one of the guys that for me is another great Italian American we mentioned before is Tommy Lasorda, who's drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers and eventually ends up their manager after they've moved to LA. Um, Lasorda is all about being Italian American from the coal country, Pennsylvania. And he's the guy I've gotten to know really well. And there's a great story. He's interviewed at the end of a, I guess a loss by the Dodgers and the loss is being blamed on their then catcher, Mike Sosha, another Italian American. And one of the reporters sort of gets up the courage because Tommy was famous for exploding and says, you know, Tommy, Sosha's in a slump. Maybe you need to swap him out. Do you think you're staying with him and playing him because he's Italian-American? And without skipping a beat, Tommy said, that's absolutely unfounded. Unbelievable you would say that. I can't believe it. I don't play Sosha because he's Italian-American. I play Sosha because I'm Italian-American. And everybody kind of laughed. And I remember a couple of years ago going to an Italian baseball dinner and Ken Espermonti was a ball player uh, with a bunch of different teams and was at, at one point the manager of the Indians was telling us a story at the table that he couldn't think of what to say in his speech. So he stole that story from Tommy and just replaced another Italian that was playing for him for the Indians and told it as if it was his own. And so it's become one of my favorite Italian American baseball stories, but but Tommy, one of the greatest managers ever, we've done pretty well as managers, haven't we Larry? Yeah. You know, that's another way that the game changed or changed for Italians. The height of Italian success in baseball was right after world war two. And, uh, between, is it 47 and 57, I think? Eight of the 22 MVP awards went to Italian-American ballplayers. Wow. That's how dominant they became. So that was the epitome of their success as players. But again, as time went on into the 50s, 60s, there was more assimilation, more social mobility. And that's why I think one of the reasons the history of Italians in baseball is interesting is that it really mirrors the history of Italian-Americans in general. So as the Italian-Americans started moving up with the socioeconomic ladder after the war, so they did in baseball and more and more became coaches, became managers, executive general managers, owners. You know, we never had an Italian-American manager until 1951 when Phil Cavaretta was named manager of the Cubs. Tony Lazzari should have been a manager. Everybody thought he was going to be a manager because he was considered one of the smartest men in baseball. He was never hired. And you have to wonder why wasn't he hired when everybody knew he was qualified. So it took more time for them to get in. But then from the 50s on, you know, you had Billy Martin came up soon after that. Sam Neely. um, Billy Martin was Italian. I never knew that. Billy Martin was almost as Italian as Tommy Lasorda. 
he uh, his mother was Italian, his grandmother was Italian, and he was raised by them because I think his mother threw his father out of the house before Billy was born. So he never knew his birth father, but she still named him after his father's name. But he was very close to his mother and very, very Italian. Phenomenal manager. One of the best. The problem with Billy as a manager is he didn't stick around very long. Well, he was definitely fiery. Well, he was a brilliant tactician, but he rubbed people the wrong way. And, you know, he had trouble with alcohol, but he was a brilliant manager. He just couldn't control himself at some point. It's a shame. Yeah, he's a tragic story, particularly now because there's so many great Italian-Americans still managing or recently retired. I mean, they became dominant. I mean, even today, you know, well, Terry Francona, who finally ended my Boston Red Sox (laughs) curse. That's right. Yeah. And their president was Italian, their CEO, right? Larry Lucchino. Yeah. Part of the Red Sox triumvirate. Ultimately, you know, when you think about the progress from the field to the executive suite and beyond, one of the figures who I've always been so enamored with is Bart Giamatti, who was the president of Yale University, president of the National League, and then eventually commissioner of baseball. And I learned from your book, I didn't realize he was only half Italian, but what a, yeah. what a great figure he is. I grew up um, three miles away from Bart Giamatti. I didn't meet him then because we were a few years apart, but his father was a professor of Italian at Mount Holyoke College. And you know, I became a professor of Italian myself later on. So I had that. I always had that affinity for Giamatti. But here's a curious thing. His father was a Dante professor, built up a great collection of Dante books that are in the Mount Holyoke Library still. When Bart Giamatti got his Ph.D. at Yale, he kind of um, strode the fence there because his mother was very New England Yankee. Her ancestors were sea captains. So his name was Angelo Bartlett Giamatti. His grandfather, his Italian grandfather was Angelo. His mother's father was Bartlett. But how did he raise himself as A. Bartlett Giamatti? Mm. In other words, he submerged the Italian a little bit because it still wasn't a great time to be Italian. And he became known as Bart. But he was Italian because as a kid, he was a big baseball fan. And he had a, he made up an all-star team of Italians, huh. an all-star team, a lot of Yankees, but, and also some Red Sox, but he wasn't even good enough to make his high school baseball team in South Hadley, Mass, but he became the manager of the baseball team. So that's how he got started in his uh, career as a, uh, as a managerial person. But this guy, think about this. Bart Giamatti becomes a distinguished professor at Yale University, one of the most popular professors, widely published. He becomes the youngest and first non-WASP president of Yale University at a very young age. Six or seven years later, he leaves that job, one of the most prestigious jobs in academia, to become president of the National League of Baseball. He said the only thing he wanted to be president of when they hired him at Yale was to be president of the American League. Well, he got the National League. And then three years later, he becomes commissioner. The chair of the search committee was no other than Bud Selig, who was one of the owners at that time. And Bud told me that when we interviewed Bart, he says, we couldn't imagine finding a more brilliant man, 
We were shocked at how much he knew the, the ins and outs of baseball. The reason Jamadi became known was because of his writings about baseball. He never was involved in baseball firsthand, but he was such an eloquent spokesman of the game uh, and the, the integrity of the game that he caught the imagination of these owners and so forth, and they brought him on as uh, commissioner. I think probably the most eloquent spokesman the game has ever had. He wrote beautifully, poetically about the game. He was idealistic about it. He saw baseball as a metaphor of American life. He says that the American dream, but not in materialistic terms, but in metaphorical terms as the search for home. Wow. He says we're a land of immigrants who left one home in search of another. So he makes a big deal about, you know, leaving home plate and going out on the search and rounding the bases and coming back home. He says, like all the great Western heroes have done from Odysseus on. So a brilliant man. And the sad part is that he never got a chance to show that because he only was commissioner for six months before he died of a heart attack. And you talk about the role he had in the game. I mean, Pete Rose, the all-time hits leader in baseball, one of the greatest ball players ever, gets caught potentially or accused of gambling on baseball and maybe even gambling on a team he was managing, the Cincinnati Reds, the oldest team in America. And it's right as Jamadi becomes commissioner and he has to go through the horrible in-sport trial and then eventually expulsion of Rose from the game forever. And he dies of a heart attack days later. Talk about literature and, and tragedy. It's almost like it was written in a, in a novel. Yeah, yeah, it was a shame. Ira Burkow, the New York Times columnist, said he uh, had the guts and the sinew to be the greatest commissioner ever. Never had the chance to prove it. You know, I think you make a great point as far as I've always said, when I talk to people from overseas, especially those who have never been to the United States, I always say that if you really want to understand the U.S., there's a few key things about us that when you examine it, you get a a, a microscopic um, in on the workings of the American mind. I always tell people, to me, the really interesting thing about baseball, if you look at it as a descendant of cricket, shows our Anglo-Saxon roots, it's one man. It's a game of one against nine other people. When you're up to bat, you only get tangential support. You know, if somebody else is on base or somebody runs to take a base, they can only give you tangential support. You're really, it's really a game of the individual versus the team. Any other game, football, soccer, basketball, hockey, it's a almost ballet of coordinated movement amongst the players. But in baseball, it's the batter against everybody else. And I think it's so it's so indicative of the American concept of individuality, me against the world. It's really well said. You know, a lot of people in Italy, you know, they kind of look at me when you say, you want to understand America, I say baseball. I always say, if you want to understand Italy, the sport is not soccer. The sport is bocce. Because how do you win bocce? How do you win? I win by knocking you out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a game. I advance by knocking your ball out of next to the Bali. So really... The Italian brain is made up of bocce, and the American brain is 100%. And, of course, bocce has the, those fine measurements that you, you know, this. You yeah, you could the, fight it with the contadina, yeah, yeah. with the tomato paste can and the string, yeah. and you can argue maybe the hole in the can is not in the center. Yeah, and then you right. can debate, then you can give up on the game. My ball is closer than your ball. You pass the line. You're right. Yeah, that's very well said. But, I, you know, thinking of baseball, 
going overseas and, and having I remember working with an Italian from Italy in NIAF and she said uh, he threw it out of the park, meaning that somebody did well. And obviously, you know, her intention was to say he hit it out of the park, but she just didn't know the game. And I was trying to explain it to her. And, you know, you talked earlier, Larry, about the fact that Mike was active from the get go and many Italian American ballplayers were active when the Italian team was brought into the world baseball classic, which for those who aren't fans is the sort of first ever baseball world cup to include professional players. And the Italian team has been represented every year. Uh, as a matter of fact, Mike's going to be the manager next time. I think it's next year, but tell us a little bit about the game in Italy because people don't realize it's not a huge game in Italy, but Italy is one of the few European countries where it has any traction. Yeah. There are two countries in Italy that are uh, always ahead of everybody else in baseball. Italy's one and the Netherlands is the other. And they often end up sort of fighting it out for the championship. Um, I studied at the University of Bologna way back in the mid-60s. And I went to some games, then professional games. And the fields weren't very well maintained. And probably at that time, I'm not sure that it even qualified as A-level baseball here. But as time went on, and more and more Italian-American coaches and so forth went over to Italy to conduct clinics, the game has come a long, long way. Now it's, you know, certainly at probably a double A level in many places, become quite popular and will never replace uh, Calcio, of course, but it's um, it made great strides. And I saw that when uh, the Italian team was here in 2005, and I've been back for other world baseball classics, and you see more and more native Italians now playing for the team rather than Italian-Americans. You know, recently, not that long ago, uh, Alex Liddy made it into the major leagues as the first one who came up through the Italian professional leagues to get a major league contract. So and I think there'll be more of those coming along. I mean, it's interesting to think the game, you know, comes on the backs of so many U.S. soldiers in the war and how much the Italian contribution here kind of does buoy it a little bit over there. Uh, you know, I always tell people two of the things I love about the Italian leagues is first of all, you oftentimes play double headers on Saturdays and they have like pasta in between a big pasta course, which, you know, you're not going to get here no matter how good the spread is in a major league clubhouse. And I know there's like many clubs keep an espresso machine in the dugout instead of Gatorade. And it's very, you know, it's Italian version of the sport. But one of the things I also always tell people is they're talented ball players of Italian American heritage and they're not, getting the break and you know it's very difficult to become a major league ball player difficult enough to even get drafted and, and play in the affiliated minor league system but you can through the law of citizenship by blood go and play in italy there's room on those rosters for italian americans and it's it's got to be a great way to experience the motherland and play the game you love and have a particular version of that life because i, I can't imagine anything better than being a professional ball player in italy you know it's not glamorous but at least you get to get back to your roots. Absolutely. You talk about Alex Leedy and um, the future of the game being one where, you know, as we globalize, it does look like the Italian product is getting better and better. There's the Italian American Baseball Foundation set up now here in the U.S. and they're mm -hmm. doing great. Our friend Mike DiSapio, we actually have listeners who are very active. Today. That's absolutely true. And they're doing gr great yes. work spreading the game, doing clinics, camps, and I know, John, you and I both have had the pleasure of being in their company, going to their events. Yeah, they do a great job. 
And and I'm always impressed by how many of the Italian ball players, both active and retired or executives, show up and participate. So, uh, you know, I got to see Joe Girardi last time I was at one of the events, and to hear him speak about his Italian heritage, I never would have assumed Joe was so aware and passionate about his heritage. And uh, it's just great. It's a great organization. So I highly encourage our listeners to go out and see what they're doing and uh, see if you can participate. And if you love the game, get active in it because – you know, as the world globalizes, it's great to encourage the game both here and in, in the uh, Madre Patria, as we say. Um, so, Larry, the, the future of the game, thank God it's coming back in a couple of weeks and we're going to get to see at least ball games being played, no matter who's there or not there in the stadium. But your next big project is obviously this book we've talked a little bit about, about Tony Lazeri. So just tell us uh, why Tony and, uh, and when we can look for the book and where our listeners can get it. Well, you know, I didn't know much about Tony Lazeri until I started doing research on Beyond DiMaggio. And he surprised me more than anybody else that I did research on. I mean, I knew he was in the Hall of Fame, but he was primarily a forgotten ball player. And he was forgotten for many reasons. One, he played with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and later on Joe DiMaggio. So he was always overshadowed in his own time. Secondly, um, he died when he was only 42 years old in 1946. So he's been out of the public consciousness for all those years. And third, the thing he's best remembered for, if you ask a very even knowledgeable baseball fan, what do you know about Tony Lazeri? They're going to point to the 1926 World Series where the Yankees were behind by one run. The bases were loaded in the seventh inning of the seventh game, and Tony Lazeri comes up. He's a rookie, 22-year-old rookie, who's had a great year. And Rogers Hornsby was the manager of the Cardinals. He goes to the bullpen and calls in his reliever, who is a 38-year-old Grover Cleveland Alexander, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. But he was at the end of his rope at that time. So you've got this 38-year-old veteran, this 22-year-old rookie, the game's on the line, and the other thing that the two of them had, the one thing they had in common, which nobody knew about Missouri, they were both epileptic. Wow. Can you imagine playing baseball with epilepsy? No. And that shadow, that daily fear, you know, you might have a seizure. To rise to that level with that is unbelievable. So all these things, Missouri strikes out, and the Yankees lose the game. So you go to the Hall of Fame, and on Alexander's Hall of Fame plaque says that he struck out Lazeri in the climactic moment of the 1926 Worlds. It's the only time a ball player's name appears on somebody else's plaque in a negative way. Wow. So that's what people remember about Tony Lazeri. So when I started reading about him and doing the research, I said, this guy is a really important figure. He was one of the great ball players of his time. Uh, in 1925, he was playing with the Salt Lake City Bees in the Pacific Coast League. He hit 60 home runs. Wow. The first player ever to hit 60 home runs in organized baseball. Wow. Tony Lazeri hits 60 home runs, drives in 222 runs, hits 355. So now he's one of the most famous people in minor league baseball. But they're not beating down his door to sign him. Why? They find out he's an epileptic. They don't want to take a chance. B, he's Italian. And there were many teams that wouldn't sign an Italian at that time. 
So the Yankees, Ed Barrow, the general manager, sent all these scouts out to check it out, and they found out that his seizures generally came only in the morning. And, of course, they played ball at 3.30 in the afternoon in those days. So Barrow was willing to take a chance because the other scout that went out said, I don't care if he has epilepsy. I don't care what he what he costs. He's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Wow. So 1926, he's in the starting lineup as a 22-year-old with Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig at first base. And the Yankees had finished seventh in 1925. And the journalists thought that the, the Yankees were crazy to start a rookie at second base. Well, the Yankees won the pennant. And the reason they won the pennant, according to Ed Barrow, the general manager, was because of Tony Lazeri. He said it was Lazeri who, even as a 22-year-old rookie, was the leader of that team. Now, obviously, there were great expectations because here's the best-known Italian ever to come into the major leagues. So he has all this pressure on him, not to mention that he's an epileptic. So the first Italian star, without question, so much so that as I said earlier in our in our discussion, fans flocked, you know, because the Italian fans, we said, they didn't want their kids to play baseball. They didn't trust it. They thought it was a waste of time. Lazeri drew all of those tens of thousands of people for the first time into the ballpark, waving the Italian flag. Wow. And these banquets, as I said, they had for him in many cities. So he, he instilled this pride don't forget, 1926, when he's a rookie, that was only two years after Congress passed that very strict Immigration Act that basically cut off all immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, including Italians, because there was so much bias. Yeah. That year that Lazeri's in Salt Lake City hitting 60 home runs, the Ku Klux Klan was at its height. Wow. And yet Lazeri becomes this famous star, even in Salt Lake City, with his Ku Klux Klan. So what's, to me, ultimately more important and why I'm writing the book, yes, he's an overlooked great star. He's a Yankee legend. He's still considered the greatest second baseman in Yankee history. But more important to me is his social significance. The first one to instill this great level of pride at a time when Italian-Americans weren't feeling very proud of a lot of things. Who was the best-known American at the time? Al Capone. Yeah. I and mean, it's kind of hard to fight that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm looking forward to reading this book now. When's it coming out? Well, I'm finishing the editing right now, and uh, it's going to be published next spring by the University of Nebraska Press, the same publisher that did Beyond DiMaggio. Well, that's going to be really exciting, and uh, I highly recommend for anybody out there who, if you're a history fan, if you're passionate, like most of our listeners, about our Italian American heritage, but particularly if you're a ball fan, Beyond DiMaggio, Italian-Americans in baseball. It's been out almost 10 years now, right? It's 2011. 2011, And yeah. it's been dog-eared and uh, had a place of love on my shelf for a long time. And oh, thank you. highly recommend it for everybody out there. So, Larry, thank you for coming on. And it's a great way to kick off the baseball season. Well, I hope it kicks it off. I mean, to have the chance to talk about baseball in these dark days before the light comes back uh, is just a delightful pleasure. And I thank you so much for having me. No, it's been our pleasure, and you're absolutely right. This is a great way to remember the normal things, and uh, baseball's 
wonderful because it's always there for you. And as somebody said, you know, it, it dies with the leaves of fall and returns again anew, like hope in the spring. So I always refer to it as the phoenix of American culture, because for all the efforts to kill it off, <laughs> for all the times people have said, you know, it's seen its better days, it always comes back, comes out of the ashes. We're very lucky that it's coming out of the ashes in a couple of weeks. And, and John, can I just say this in closing? Yeah. Rosella, you definitely won't sing Take Me Out to the Bull Game in Molays. Absolutely. <laughs> close out the show. No. Pat, I thought you were going to no. translate it in Neapolitan. I know, yeah. but it's just, everything sounds better in Molays. No, you got to sing it first in Neapolitan, and then I'll think about it. You got to translate it. Maybe <laughs> we'll have a duet. You could be the A side, I'll be the B side. Anybody want to sing us out with their version in English? No, but I will say I've never heard Rosella so quiet in all my life. <laughs> what do you want from me? Like, I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to offend somebody. Like, it's like, get this nice man who wrote a nice book. I'm going like, to show my ignorance. There, there she is. Uh, <laughs> next week, topic that everybody knows. Yeah, Jesus, <laughs> colonialism and baseball. Thanks. We run the gamut. And that's why everybody enjoys the Italian American podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this very special episode with our wonderful guest. Hopefully, you'll be back next week, and we'll talk to you again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>